three Sundays ago, you may have been here, when that line of storms that brought 43 tornadoes to the state of Illinois hit Wheaton. I remember because I was preaching at the time, it was during this service, and all of a sudden the sky out there got unbearably dark, and the wind started to blow severely, and there were these large early drops of rain. I knew it because I was preaching away like this. I wasn't really looking at the windows. And suddenly I noticed about halfway through my sermon, no one is looking at me. (laughs) Everyone is looking like this. And so while I'm going on up here about 1 Chronicles 28 and David and Solomon, everybody's like, we're going to (laughs) die. Well, I got home from church that day and I could barely make it into my driveway because those high winds had hit the maple tree in our front yard and had just shattered off the top half of that tree and it had fallen into our driveway. So I called the city and I I was there Monday morning when two guys came out. And the one guy got out of the truck and picked up a big chainsaw and went and started cutting that fallen tree, section of tree into big chunks. And as he did, then the other guy would pick up those branches, a lot of them were this big around, and haul them over to the the giant gaping maw of this yellow chipper that they had towed in with their truck. And so he would feed those in there, and you could hear, as it ground it down into chips. When they had finished clearing the debris that was in my driveway, they brought out a can of spray paint from the truck and did this with it. They went and there was a big red X placed on the remaining trunk of that tree. And I knew what that meant. Come spring, they're coming back out, and they're going to take that tree all the way down. And they're probably going to bring the stump grinder and grind it out until there's nothing left to show that that tree was there. Now, if you can picture that tree with the red X sprayed on its trunk, you can already picture one of the most important word pictures you could understand to know how do I get ready for the return of Jesus Christ? What do I need to do between thou and then so that my life is ready? And if you understand that shade trees are supposed to produce shade, and if they don't do that any longer, there's nothing you can do but take them down then you already understand the warning that was brought by one of the greatest prophets of all time, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who was sent to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus Christ. And his message applies to us who are waiting for that coming, the second coming. Let's see what he says. If you would turn in Matthew 3 to verse 8. John says, bear fruit. He's, he's saying as though you are and I are, are fruit trees. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And then verse 10, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. There's already red paint being sprayed. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This image is so important, I want to make sure that we unpack it and understand it. John is saying, it's as if you and I are fruit trees. And and therefore, we are producing fruit. There's something that should be coming out of our lives that can be examined by who? By the owner, 
Now think about this. The tree does not enjoy the fruit it grows. It's not like an apple tree reaches up, grabs off one of the apples and goes, that's amazing. That's so delicious. No, already we understand in this image that your life and my life is not our project. It actually belongs to another. There is an orchard owner, God, who is looking at us and saying, are you bringing forth fruit? So fruit is something that comes forth from your life or my life that is satisfying to the owner, God, that is pleasing to the owner, God. And then, and then John extends the metaphor and, and, and says that there's an ax. There's the judgment of God that if we have the fruit that God is looking for, our lives take on meaning and purpose. We delight the Father. But if we're barren of that fruit, there's an ax that will come. Karen and I spent part of the summer in Door County this year, and, and as you drive along up there, you see a lot of cherry orchards. And, and so you'll see these trees that have been very carefully trimmed to a certain height so that they can be harvested, and they're in very neat rows. So it's like cherry tree, cherry tree, cherry tree, cherry tree. Every once in a while, as you're driving along, you'll notice something is different, and it, it catches your eye, because there's like cherry tree laden with cherries, cherry tree laden with cherries, cherry tree half shriveled, withering, and hardly any cherries left on it. And you know that if the orchard owner is at all responsible, that unless that cherry tree turns it around and starts to bear good crops of cherries, it's going to be cut down and a new tree will be put in its place because fruit trees are supposed to bear fruit. Now, we all understand this, I think. So the key question for us is, what is that fruit? What is it in our lives that God is looking for and saying, that satisfies me, that pleases me. You're doing what I created you to do. And what is that fruit that if it's not there, from God's point of view, our lives are wasted and empty and nothing can be done with that life? Well, I think, friends, this is a vital question for us. It's so important because there's a lot of people who think they have the fruit that God is looking for, and they don't. A lot of religious people think they've got the fruit that God is looking for, and they don't. A lot of Christian people, a lot of church people, there's a lot of confusion about this and self-delusion. And so one of the things I want to do most this morning is clear that away. I want to say with absolute clarity from the word of God, what is the fruit that God is looking for when he looks at your life and he looks at mine? Let's look at that together. If you turn to verse one, it says, in those days, John the Baptist or John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming, repent. Now, repent is a word that means change your life. It's like if you have a conversation with a doctor and they say, unless you change your diet, unless you make dramatic changes in your lifestyle, you're going to have a heart attack. You need to change. Repent. And so people are hearing John and he's shaking them and, and, and they are responding. In verse 5, it says, the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to John and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they would step down into those muddy waters and they would publicly confess their sin. And then John would baptize them. 
Now look at this though, verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, can we just pause there? Because this is not what any of us would expect. If we were, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the folks whose lives are really the most together. They're the most observant people that have come out to John. They're the most devoted people who've come out to John. These people take their faith seriously. It would be as if we read it, but when he saw many pastors and nuns and Salvation Army officers coming for baptism, he said, you snakes. And you're like, well, why? Why would John, let's say these religious people even have some issues inside and and they're a little messed up. Why would John not want them to come and, and confess their sins publicly just like everybody else has? Why does he not want them to do that? And the answer is verse eight. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Show me the repentance. Don't just talk about repentance because here's the odd thing. Did you know it is possible to confess your sins and even in that moment, what the confession is primarily about is you getting attention for that rather than really committing yourself to change. Isn't that frightening? That we can take something as good as confession of sin and twist it in that way to avoid doing the real work we need to do? I I caught on to this early on when I began to preach. There was a, a sermon, I don't remember the specifics of it now, but I remember that I, during the sermon, I confessed a sin in my life and it was kind of embarrassing, honestly, but I talked about it. And after the sermon, uh, a person met me afterward and said, oh, that was so brave of you to, to share what you did. I can't believe you'd stand up there in front of us and just be honest about that. And then somebody else came over to me and they said, that was so humble that you would stand up there and just acknowledge that you're, you've sinned and failed in that way. And all of a sudden I realized, whoa, I'm getting props for confessing my sin, but nobody knows whether I'm really interested in changing that sin. You see that? I'm getting public acclamation for confessing a sin, but nobody really knows. Is Kevin going to work on that? Is he going to take that to heart and change it? And John's saying, don't come out here. I know you tithe. I know you pray. But don't you dare step down in here and and get more attention for how sweet and religious you are and how painfully little your sins are because I'll know you've changed when you've changed. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Oh, is it frightening to you as it is frightening to me that it is entirely possible that you or I could become more and more religious and simultaneously less and less godly. Wow. John's saying, I'm not interested in the religion. I'm interested in the real change. A while back, I was, uh, I got up in the morning and I do as I do in the morning. I get coffee so that my brain functions. And I opened up my Bible and I began to read the Bible and to pray. And as I did, I felt like God nudged me. He brought to my mind that the day before, a friend of ours who lives at a distance had lost a loved one. And we're not super close any longer. I I didn't know that they would expect us to send flowers, but I felt prompted by the Lord that I should send that kind of tangible expression of our sympathy to comfort the family in their loss. 
And so I went online and started Googling around for florists in their area. And actually, because of where they live, there actually aren't many. And I was getting more and more frustrated. I couldn't find what I was looking for. And it was taking a lot of time on the web. And I was like, I really wanted to be reading my Bible and praying. So I finally gave in and used my phone as an audio device. And I called the florist. And, and I said... Um, I'm interested in such and such. And they said, well, that's not really in our delivery area. So the the delivery charge is $25. And and the minimum bouquet that we would take over would be $50. And I quickly said, well, $75. That's more sympathy than I wanted to express. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and what I thought to myself was, Lord, you know that I just wanted to just pray this morning and read the Bible. Now it's right there where you have that impulse, I just want to kind of hide behind the religion and I don't want to do the hard work of sacrificial generosity for someone in need. And if you and I let that impulse go in our lives and pick up steam and stay with us and grow throughout our lives, here's where it ends up. It ends up with the people who come into my office following the funeral and they say to me, I don't understand. I don't understand how my dad could have been an elder in his church and been a terror at home. I'm so confused. You know what? God is not confused. This is one of the clearest messages of the New Testament. Every single voice in the New Testament warns against this danger of having surface religion, but not real change. And John is saying, would you repent from surface religion and would you repent with real change? You read John, you read uh, Jesus, you read Paul. I mean, just let me give you two examples. Jesus says in Matthew, outwardly, you look like righteous people. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Or or take this from Paul. He says, people will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. He says, stay away from people like that. Wow. So friends, you and I are now back to that same question we started with, aren't we? What is the fruit If it's not surface religion, what is it that God is looking for? And I'm so thankful to tell you that that is answered with crystal clarity in the word of God. And it comes from the the words of John the Baptist himself. I'll be reading a few verses from Luke chapter 3. John says, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food... Share it with those who are hungry. Bring forth the fruit of sacrificial generosity for those in need. Of generosity that is not, I have $100, I'm going to keep 99 for myself, I'm going to give one, I'm not even going to really notice that one. But of a generosity such that there's a sacrifice attached, I notice it. I used to have two shirts in my closet and now I go and I've got one. But what was going on for me was I was now as concerned about your need who are in need as I was with my need. I wanted to make sure you had a nice shirt just like I had a nice shirt. That is real change. And that is something God's looking for. And that is something that pleases him and satisfies him. And that is something that if you have it, gives you confidence to stand at the day of Jesus' return. 
Now, I have to affirm this, church. This is a fruit that I have seen come forward in some magnificent ways over the last two years. You've been challenged here. If you've stayed here at Res and been here at Res, you know that Bishop Stewart has challenged you and I've challenged you and other leaders have said, we want you to give sacrificially for the Lord, the lost and the least, and you have. And today we're on an anniversary where we're celebrating one year of being in this beautiful space. And you know what's exciting? I looked at the proposed budget for next year and there's more dollars going in direct ministry of compassion and justice to the poor than ever before. Even though we now have the upkeep of the building to take care of, it's, it's actually done exactly what we'd hoped, which is actually platform us to do more for the least. And so I have to affirm you and, and, and say to those of you who've stepped out in sacrificial generosity, you can be affirmed. Next week, we have a wonderful opportunity for those of you who are still kind of stirred by this and would like to take a tangible step. If you don't know ministries and people in need that you could give to and you would totally trust, we're going to have Christmas Village next week. And you can walk around. I can tell you, every one of those ministries that you'll see out there in the booths is doing really good work among those on the margins, both here in our county and around the world. But God's looking first for the fruit of generosity. Second, God is looking for this. He says to tax collectors, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Whoa. Okay, no greed, no cooking of the books, no yearning for more money than I'm really entitled to. Um, Soldiers, don't extort money or make false accusations. Be content with your pay. He's saying... God is looking for the fruit of contentment. That is a rare fruit in our culture. Oh, and it's so under challenge right now as we go into the Christmas season, isn't it? I mean, you watch TV and these ads come on and the Christmases in the ads are perfect. Their house is nicer than my house. Their tree is sparklier than my tree. Their kids, they're not cuter than my kids, but when they get the gift from grandpa, they go say thank you and nuzzle up to grandpa. My kid can't hide the face of disappointment at the gift that came from grandpa. See? And so we look at that and we go, oh man, my life is not actually as awesome as I'd hoped it would be. And if you let that self-pity come in, that discontent start to work in your heart, what will start to happen is you get a chronic impatience with the people around you, your roommates, your relatives, your friends, because they're not living up to your expectation. They're not providing you with the life you had so hoped that you would live. They're more demanding than you understood that they would be. And they're taking you to places you didn't want to go. And then if you let that go, what will happen in your heart is you start to develop a sloth toward the things of God because what's unspoken in your heart is, why should I be killing myself for you, God, when this is all you've done for me? That's what discontentment does. And John is coming to us this morning and he's saying, repent of that. Don't let that get going in your life. Bring forth the fruit of contentment. The content person is a delight to be around. It's satisfying fruit to the owner. And God's calling us to that. So the fruit of generosity, the fruit of contentment, and finally, the fruit of faithfulness. John publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. Now, now, how do you get to a place of unfaithfulness where you actually take your brother's wife? I'll tell you how it starts. It starts right here. 
It starts in the life of the mind, the fantasy life, the life that says, ah, that would be awesome. I must have that. Some of you, you've got a fantasy life that's growing. It's growing like a weed. It's not been checked. You haven't yet taken it to a pastor or a prayer group or an accountability structure and said, help me hold this back so it does not continue to grow and destroy the people I love most. And so you're kidding yourself right now about why you have to go by that desk one more time and why you need one more meeting with that other person at work. Because the fantasy has gotten going. And John is saying, repent of that. Bring forth a fruit that says, I will stay faithful to the commitments, the people, and the vows in my life. That's real change. That's what God is looking for. Now, this, this constant temptation to surface religion, instead of pressing into real change, I, I, I was so moved This is what it looks like for you and for me, friends. I was so moved when I read the story of a man named Bob Merritt. If some of you are from Minnesota, you may know this church. It's called Eagle Brook Church. And it's one of the largest, most sort of expansive churches in the state. They have like six or seven sites. Too many services on a weekend to count. And and Bob is their senior pastor. And as the church grew and grew and spread and spread, he became more and more overworked and more and more overwhelmed and feeling more and more underappreciated. And he says very candidly in an article that I read that it began coming out in harsh comments toward his staff and to these angry outbursts toward his family. He would ruin vacations because he'd be lecturing his family like, this is how you treat me after I plan this vacation for you and that kind of thing. It got so bad at the church that finally the elders scheduled a meeting in which there was one topic on the agenda. Should Bob Merritt continue to be our senior pastor? And they decided at that meeting, yes, we want you to continue, Bob, but if you are, here's what's going to happen. You're going to enter a one-year process with a leadership coach named Fred. So Fred came. And Fred and his assistant took a 60-question questionnaire, basically saying, what's good about Bob and what's bad about Bob? And they interviewed every person in his family. They interviewed every one of his close friends. And they interviewed almost every single person on the staff. And when they got done, they had a 200-page report with verbatims from those conversations. And Fred sat down with Bob in his office and began to read for two days what other people were saying they were seeing in Bob. And there were comments on there like this, Bob overlooks relationships. Bob doesn't listen. Bob is unapproachable. Bob has a love problem. Finally, they got to where it said, his son David said, my dad is angry a lot. And Fred just let that hang there for a bit. And Bob said, that was the moment I broke. And I finally began the journey of change. And he has. Family relationships are being mended. Staff relationships are starting to become fun again. And he's still there able to pastor because he wouldn't hide behind religion any longer. He was going to go for real change. Now, what is it going to be for you, friends, and for me? John the baptizer is coming to us this morning just like a leadership coach named Fred. And he's saying, are you acting generous? 
Are you acting content? Are you acting faithful? Because that's what God's really looking for. What will it be for your life and for mine? Will it be a fruit tree or firewood? Is it going to be surface religion or real change? It's your life. It's your destiny. It's your call.